Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, greetings from Anfield. Uh, it's about 15 minutes to go until kickoff. So obviously this is the ground where Spurs have a really bad record, haven't won since 2011. Um, that was the end of season dead rubber. Uh, I don't know, a few people speaking to feeling like maybe they could get something today. I don't know if that's the breezy confidence that comes with a game that doesn't have loads riding on it. Uh, it increasingly feels like, well, top four's gone and so then it's Europa or Conference League. Um, Kudusevsky comes in for Richarlison and Davis comes in for Longley. Be interesting to see how that goes. But yeah, it's, I don't know. We'll see. See if the atmosphere picks up. It doesn't have that kind of red hot feel these games sometimes do. I remember being here last season when Spurs played really well and drew with Liverpool 1 1 uh, in May to basically end Liverpool's title charge. Or so it seemed, Liverpool took it to the final day in the end um, but yeah let's see I mean I feel like there was a bit of positivity after Thursday Spurs played with a bit of heart can that translate to something today I think a point would be a good result uh, let's see Salah I love a fast start here by Alexander Arnold Jones in the limelight. Gakpo is in behind for Diaz. Luis Diaz. It's 2-0 after five minutes. Salah scores. And it is 3-0 inside the first 15 minutes for Liverpool. Here's Perisic. It's opened up for Kane. Yes, this time it's fired in. Romero for Son. Might become 3-2 here. It does. Richarlison. And it's ended up in the back of the net. And it's Richarlison. Can you believe it? A glancing touch. Lucas Moura, what's he done? He put Jutter in. Absolutely crazy game. Um, you know, after 15 minutes, I think we were all bracing ourselves for another Newcastle type thing. You know, just damage limitation. Can we get out of here without a complete humiliation? But really, from about half an hour in, Spurs got a foothold and created a lot of chances. You know, it, it felt when they got the second and then the third, even the third, you know, they both felt like they were really coming. And then to give it away like they did, Lucas Moura. Uh, just so maddening. I mean, I, I put it out there on Twitter, has that ever happened, that a team's recovered a 3-0 deficit in a Premier League game and lost? Um, and turns out Spurs themselves did it in the 94-95 season, uh, home to Villa, which, if I recall correctly, was Jerry Francis's first game. James Moore was, was possibly there. But it's a crazy thing to happen. And for it to happen in stoppage time, I think something like 100 seconds between the goal, and most of that was taken up with him celebrating and Richarlison doing his bird thing. But at least Spurs felt something again. You know, I talked last week about how apathy's crept in and when it was 3-0, all Spurs fans were doing were, you know, they were amazing, but it was just gallows humour. You know, it was how shit must you be? It's only 2-0 after five minutes. And, you know, that was all they could do is that defence mechanism. But by the end, it was they were so invested. Everyone cared so much. Everyone was furious with more, furious with Klopp, and at least feeling something again. Even though, obviously, it was a sickener. But yeah, it was a crazy game. I mean, Kane was on brilliant again. I thought Hoybier had a really good second half as well. But yeah, I mean, I guess the game it showed why neither of these teams are troubling the top four because they can't defend. But yeah, second game running Spurs, you know, Spurs 2-0 down against United, 2-2, 3-0 down, got it to 3-3 here. It's something, uh, you know, it's been a low bar this season, but there were some positives out there, just a sickening end for Spurs.
Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the award-winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm your host, Danny Kelly, and alongside me today, special thanks, because it is a bank holiday, and he could be lying in his pit, um, no pun intended, it's The Athletic's Jack Pitt-Brook. Hello, Jack. Hey, Danny. How are you doing? Great, thank you, um, and lovely to see you. I must also uh, say a quick thank you to Charlie Eccleshare for his report from Anfield at the top of the show there. He called it a sickening ending to the game for Spurs. Uh, Charlie is, of course, referring uh, to the 94th minute winner uh, from Diogo Jota in a dramatic 4-3 away defeat for Spurs at Liverpool. Uh, Once again, um, we gifted goals to the opposition. But as ever, we will try our best to find the positives on the view from the lane. Not something we've done a lot of, I think, in recent weeks. Jack, we can get into the details of the game, and I will, and I want to. Um, I'd love to know when when the fourth goal for Liverpool went in, what were your feelings? Because I think you can imagine mine. <laughs> Pretty bad, because I thought that the three-all draw would have been would have been such an amazing... Um, in the context of recent months, a three-all draw at Anfield would have been a great achievement. It was a great game. And it, I felt sad for the Spurs players and the Spurs fans that what would have been this amazing um, result was denied to them. Uh, it's, it's it's such a painful way to to lose a game. That the, strangely enough, the game it reminded me of, and I don't know if I mean this is not a Spurs relevant reference, but uh, there was a Manchester derby in two thousand nine when uh, at Old Trafford, which Manchester United won four three in which City kind of hauled themselves back to 3-all um, with Craig Bellamy scoring in the last minute to make it 3-all. And at the time, every, you know, City fans thought this was amazing to have have, have drawn 3-all at Old Trafford. And then Michael Owen scored with basically the last kick of the game in the 96th minute. Um, so a very a similar pattern of the match to the one last night. But yeah, it, painful because I was hoping that Spurs would get a good result. But it, as Charlie says in his excellent piece, which I would recommend to people, it was, I'm sure Spurs fans will feel that, you know, a sense of, isn't it good to have a team that plays to the final whistle and you're really... Not you quite know, to I, the I, final I, whistle. Well, no, but <laughs> closer to the final whistle. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I, set, I sense an, like an emotional investment in the performance of Spurs in the two games that Ryan Mason's been in charge of so far, which I think people find quite validating and um, energising. And, you know, people have not felt any kind of emotional energy and connection with the team at all this season, have they? Do you, do you think, I mean, people like me, there will be people out there, um, one doesn't want to guess the listenership, double guess the listenership, but there are people saying, Danny, you've got what you wanted. You're hoist by your own patar. I always say I'd like to see Spurs risk losing 3-2 to win the game 3-2, and they risk losing 4-3 there to try and win the game 4-3. Um, but I must, you know, whether or not I am hoist by my own petard, I, I'm taking a, a real positive out of this. Of course, it's an absolute kick in the reproductive organs um, to to lose a late winner like that, particularly as the team had made such a great effort. But at least they, we'll talk about the start in a minute, at least they got on the front foot and played some football. Um, and I go further than you, Jack. I think they're unlucky not to have won the game by the time they, you know, they got Richarlison's goal. Um, they hit both posts. Um, they, 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 they had chances and chances and chances. And it was a fascinating game from one aspect, wasn't it? In that for 74 minutes, Spurs played the way that I would describe as Spursy. And for 16 minutes, they played Spursy in the way that everyone else talks about it. The first 15 minutes were negative Spursy. Lucas Moura's touch was incredibly Spursy. Um, and in between, when they were just rolling forward and against, you know, not the best Liverpool team of all time, but against a, a very difficult place to play. I thought they were terrific for, or am I, let me ask a direct question so it's not serious statements. Can you be said to have dominate, to be dominating the game if you're 3-0 down? Well, it's funny you say that because I, I know what you mean. Like I know, I'm sure people will say, well, look, Liverpool were 3-0 up. They had no, you know, they had no obligation or incentive to keep attacking. But, after and I know and I know that people will say that you know you can't you can't just disqualify the first section of the game and say well after three 0 down Spurs were the better team but they were the better team after they went three 0 down they were they created I can't I mean Spurs create so few chance have have created so few chances all season 
that it, watching them play like they did yesterday and cr- repeatedly creating good chances against a good team away from home, it's the kind of thing we haven't seen for them all year. I mean, if you look at... Let's think about Spurs' Spurs's performances in, other, in you know equivalent games, so away at other big teams this year. Old Trafford, I thought, was the, arguably the worst performance of the season. Um, at the Emirates, I thought that they... I didn't think they played that badly, but they didn't really create that many clear-cut chances. They had attacks that fell apart with the final pass. So I thought yesterday they were better in the final third than they were at the Emirates, although you can draw a bit of a comparison between those two. Chelsea, they were never really in it, and they nicked a point, I thought. Um, that was obviously the Conte Tuchel game, which feels like a very long time ago now. It is a lot. I mean, it is a very long time ago now. It's like nine months ago. It's well, like it's, it's, it's seven managers ago between the two clubs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and is that? And then at City away, obviously they, you know, they had those chances in the first half and they hit the post, but um, then they collapsed in the second half. So I think if you if you were to look at all the. Uh, all of their trips to the other big six. And then, of course, New- Newcastle, who arguably are now an, an elite team as well, where they were pathetic. So if you were to look at all of their trips to the other big big teams away from home in the Premier League this season, I thought this was the best performance of the lot. And again, it underlines this It underlines this point, which we made on the pod the other day, which is that they, they are showing a level of commitment and energy and intelligence, even in the tiny sample size of these two games they've had under Mason so far. Which does make you think, well, why didn't they do this in March? Why didn't they put Ryan Mason in charge in March? I mean, quite apart from the, you know, whatever about what he's doing now, um, it was just the, and no disrespect to the man, because I don't know him from Adam, Christian Stellini, but his rather baleful presence was just, if nothing else, just reminded of the ogre who had gone before. Um, and so, I, we, we, look, it is clearly a, a ridiculous decision that um, uh, even Daniel Levy, um, rhino like Hyde and all, will have to one day say, God, that didn't go well, did it? I, I might have been partially responsible for that. Um, we do need to talk about it. I, I don't think we should ignore the first 15 minutes, not only in and of themselves, but in context. Now, look, some of this is distorted by the fact that they have shipped 10 goals in the last two away games. But Spurs' goal Goals against Colin. I mean, you're right, Jack, to say they, they've scored, they've not made a lot of chances this season, but they've scored quite a few goals. They're, you know, Harry Kane's got 25, which does help uh, pad the stats, but he is part of the team. But defensively, there are teams who are looking over their shoulder at relegation who have conceded less goals. Um, and something is, is amiss with the individual defenders or whichever system they play, whatever we're doing, um, because... I can't remember a time during the season when I felt secure defensively. You know, you're going to concede a goal or two against good teams, but they look like they're going to concede almost every time that the opposition attacks. Um, if we don't have the ball in the opposition half, Spurs look terribly vulnerable. Yeah, it's been awful. Uh, the defence has been appalling all season. Uh, you can just see, if you just look back at how many, so what's that, 57 goals for the season they've conceded in the Premier League? Um, if you look back at the, over the, if you look back on the internet over old tables, it's really rare for Tottenham to concede say more than. So Spurs have conceded fifty-seven goals this season. It's really rare for Tottenham. I mean, so Tottenham conceded sixty-one in two thousand seven eight and sixty-two in two thousand two three. But generally, a good a good team doesn't concede that, that many goals. Like it's really it's ridiculous for a team which has got um you know for for a team which wants to be in the Champions League, which is. You know, which had a brilliant defensive record in the second half of last season. The second half of last season, Danny, Tottenham were impenetrable defensively. And I think that the, the biggest single sign, I think, of how much worse they've been this year than la- the second half of last year, probably at least as much as the collapse of Son's form, is the collapse of the, of the defence. Like, it's it's amazing. I mean, it's only, it wasn't that long ago. It was 2016-17, they conceded 26 goals in the Premier League. This season, they will have conceded more than double that already, and there's still a few a handful of games to play in which Tottenham could easily concede another five to ten goals and take them well up into the high 60s, which is abysmal. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things you can you can look at for this. You know, some people would say... Well, it's to do with the fact they didn't sign a proper left-sided centre-back in the in the summer, which, of course, is what, something they wanted to do. They didn't sign a good right wing-back until January. But even then, you know, Emerson is probably defensively better than Poirot. And 
Poro's really come in more for attacking football. Um, you could say that it's because there's been a general drop in whether you, I mean, some people would say standards or confidence or fitness. There's lots of different factors you might want to look at, but the overall team performance has been worse this season, but it is a shocking record. Well, against against the grain of this award-winning podcast, um, I'm going to say um, I was wrong because um, I think one of the threads that has unraveled is at the start of the season, I was questioned very closely about about Hugo Lloris. And I said that I, you know, he's still a top goalkeeper. And I I think the phrase I used was we can go to we've been able to go to bed for 10 years running now, never having to worry at least about, about Spurs' goalkeeper. I think his form deteriorating may have spread out. I think you can look at international football as well. Once Eric Dyer got himself back in the England squad, his form seems to have dropped off as though he was looking to achieve something and then having done so, let out a deep breath. And you can definitely um, put Christian Romero's post-World Cup form, uh, you know, is possibly affected by him winning the World Cup. I mean, you, you'd think it would be a positive, but maybe he too has achieved what he wanted to do this season and subconsciously has, has switched off. Pedro Porro doesn't look like a good defender at this stage, though I thought he was great once Spurs went three down. I thought he really, really forced um, Andy Robertson to defend his end of the pitch, um, which is which which negates a lot of what Liverpool do if you can do that. And I mean, he's shot. He clearly fancies himself as Roberto Carlos. He's a right-footed Roberto Carlos as well, isn't he? Um, with his goal in midweek and that shot that he had that went, uh, went flying over the bar. So I think, and this is why I think it's been very difficult for the coaching staff to fix the defence, Jack, because I think if it's a systematic problem, that is easier to fix. You know, you, you set out the bins and you set out the mannequins and we all talk about it. If every one of them individually has got, you know, no one is, Perisic is trying to play in a position that he's, he's playing in a very competitive league in, in a defender's position, which he's done okay in Italy. Every one of them has had an individual crisis. I mean, Longley at least has been consistent. He's not the best defender, but he's not been rubbish either. The rest of them all had individual things going on. And I think that's why it's been very hard for the management to nail it down. Because it's like whack-a-mole. You fix Romero, Dyer makes a mistake. You fix Dyer, the goalkeeper makes a mistake. Whether it's the system or the individuals, whether it's the same individuals upgraded mentally, they're going to have to do better. Because that form takes me on to the next thing. That defensive form, if Harry Kane isn't the team, will leave you six or seven from bottom. Now, I don't buy this thing. Harry Kane's got 25 goals. He's got huge percentage of the goals in the Premier League uh, this season. Uh, 25 of 63, so 45% of all the goals. They say, what do we do without those? Well, of course, somebody else would get some goals. You are allowed to play 11 players. But I'm going to ask you a question that we've asked a lot, and it sends a shiver down my spine um, asking you because of what's possible to happen in the summer. What the hell would Spurs do without Harry Kane this season? And next. Yeah, it would be it would be really really tough. Um, I it's weird because the thing about Kane is so he's got what he's got twenty five so far in the league. I think so. Let's assume that he'll end up around twenty eight, twenty nine. So it's going to be his his best goal scoring season for a long time. So he got thirty in the league in twenty seventeen eighteen, which is you know peak Pochettino. I think the era. Um, and, so, and and since then he hasn't you know he he has not really got close to thir- to, to getting back to thirty. I actually don't think in terms of his performances he's been quite as good as he was in the second half of last season. I thought Kane from basically January through to April last season was as good as I've ever seen him. And I know in the last few games, I think he started to get a bit back to how he to how he was then. So I thought against Manchester United was probably the best I've seen him play this season in terms of marrying his kind of danger in the his danger in the box with his ability to come back and find space and play passes and really run the game like that. Um, so I do think his, I, I mean, I don't think his his goals necessarily tell the whole story. I don't want to sound like I'm criticising Kane because he's still been amazing. And com- where Tottenham would be without him is kind of unimaginable in the sense that if he wasn't there and they just had, you know, a generic seven out of ten centre forward or frankly the, the type of centre forward that they would sign because they it's not like they would be spending a hundred million on a replacement I don't think 
um, they would just be they would be lost. I think they would be completely lost. I don't think you know in terms of not just in terms of being able to put the ball in the net. Like I thought his finish yesterday was amazing. Like it made he made it look easy, but the ball was so close to him when he hit it that it was a kind of miracle of technique to be able to to kind of hit it on the run like that with um, and put it you know but, um, uh, and I, it straight uh, through Allison's leg. A three and a half foot off the ground volley. I mean, really, really, it's an incredible accuracy of 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 contact with the ball. You know, the goalkeeper can save it. That's that's what you get when you do four hundred of these every day for the last twelve years, whatever it is that Kate. You know, Kate. We all know that Kane is an obsessive trainer who just finishes and finishes and finishes and finishes in training, just so that he can hit the he can hit these difficult shots exactly right. Um, so yeah, they'd be lost, I think, to be honest. One, because of the goals that he scores, but also just the general leadership, his control of the game, his ability to slow the game down, his ability to create chances for opponents. You know, he's two players, as we said a hundred times, he's two players in one. He's a number nine and a number ten. And in terms of his number tenness, the better Son plays, the better he looks. And again, you know, we'll come on to Son, I'm sure, but Son's Son has been the last two games have been Son's two best games of the season by miles, by absolute miles. And um, if the better Son plays, the better Kane looks because Kane's passes have got someone to go to. And you know, I think that really in the last in the last one thing that Ryan Mason has sort of re-energized as, as well as the positive feeling that Spurs fans have for the team is this sense that you know the Son Kane thing does still work. This great thing that I mean this great kind of tactic technique uh combination whatever you want to call it that Spurs have had in the last six years Son you know Kane playing the ball to Son it's uh it's back um and if you know and if Spurs have still got that next season then they then they're in business well two things about that Jack very quickly um one every time Kane scores now because you he's now the bucket of of goals um, it's full of water, water, and every time he scores now, something has to spill out in the form of a record. Um, 25 goals, four seasons in the Premier League. Only Alan Shearer has achieved that in the past, and there's no reason to believe um, whether he stays at Spurs or not that he won't go past that because he does have the spectre of Erling Haaland um, coming, bearing down on him. And secondly, this is only my opinion, and I'm not a businessman. And that is, I see people saying, well, if he won't sign his contract, they've got to get the 50 or 60 million quid off Manchester United or whatever. I'm sorry, I'm making them sound like thick. It's a perfectly okay thing to think and say, but I don't think it's right. Um, and I hope Daniel Levy has more common sense, cultural sense, football sense than business sense. Even if they can't get Kane to sign a new contract this season, we know he will play well next um, and I think it could be absolutely critical if they get in a good manager to give him a year with Kane and risk losing some millions. I mean, come on, look the amount of money these football clubs make. What is thirty million next next summer going to going to going to mean? You know, um, just put on more Beyonce concerts, as I understand is the or more go karting, since that seems to be um, the way of making money these days. Otherwise, why are they doing it? Uh, they should move heaven and hell to keep him. Of course, they should. Um, and if he's determined that he wants to try something else, I think they should be very gentle with him and say, but we're going to keep you to your contract and then we'll say Aravadurchi. Um, I wouldn't sell him this summer under any circumstances. At the moment, I think... I have kind of mixed feelings about this. Not not whether or not Spurs should sell him, because my view is that they should not sell him. Um, I know that, you know, they could spend them they could reinvest the money but to be honest, like they don't have a managing director of football at the moment they don't have you know they don't i know they've got gavanini and scolding and steinson and, and that but they don't have like a parity figure who's in charge of recruitment so i wouldn't necessarily would you would you do you think it would make sense to give to give the tottenham recruitment department such as it is that money to to reinvest in players this summer i'm not I think they're better off. I think they're better. I mean, I think they're better off with Kane for one more year and running the risk that he might go for free than they are letting him go and um, you know risking wasting that money on a, on another player. I also think that like having Kane there is such an he's such an important force. Basically, you know, he kind of he in terms of getting the the, the fans believing in terms of smoothing the transition for the new manager. I also think Spurs are not really. I think think the I think the prospect of Spurs going to next season without Kane just sounds quite 
I mean, that would be really, really, really tough. I think if you take Kane out of the picture, there's not there's not a lot holding that holding that team together, that that dressing room together. And so, so, so that's my that's why I think they should not sell Kane. Whether trying to guess what Daniel Levy will do is harder uh, because you have to see inside somebody else's brain. But my sense, like my my gut instinct, is that he will, unless Manchester United come come up with huge amounts of money, and I don't I don't think they will. Although who knows? I'm kind of veering towards Daniel Levy taking the risk, taking the risk of losing him for free. I think my sense, my guess is that Daniel Levy has been through such a tough time with the fans and the public recently. You know, Thursday would have been very painful with all those fans calling him to go. That I think the prospect of... Uh, and, you know, he's got to find a manager. He's got to find a new managing director of football. He's got all this all this rubbish he's got to wade through. I think the prospect of also then saying to the fans at some point this summer, oh, by the way, sorry, Harry Kane's gone to Manchester United or wherever. I think that would be, it's not a good time. And I know there's never going to be a good time to sell Kane, but I think the timing is so bad and I think he's under so much public pressure that my guess is that it will push him in the direction of we'll keep him for one more year, we'll try and persuade him to sign a new contract, we'll take the risk that he might walk for free in 2024. That's just my that's just my my kind of gut level reading of the situation. So it, it might be wrong. You know, last time I tried to guess what Daniel Levy would do, I guessed that he would eventually put in a call to Pochettino and I got that completely wrong. So maybe I will be as wrong on this one, but th- that's how I see it. I mean, you look, they don't have a director of football, so I'll do the job for free here. Um, they The triangulation of Kane is... Very, very limited where he could go, partially because he's, um, you know, pretty well paid. Though I think they they would be well within their rights to give him a fifty percent pay rise. A player of his standard in another club, one or two clubs, would be getting three hundred thousand pound a week. Ridiculous um, and insane, though that sounds. Um, Real Madrid uh, could could argue they need to upgrade at some stage at centre forward. The problem with Real Madrid is that Benzema has just scored three hat-tricks in the last month and continues to be as good as as ever. Plus, they have both never stopped talking to Kylian Mbappe and have decided they might like Jude Bellingham as well. They haven't got infinite money. Bayern Munich, and I just don't see them giving you the kind of money that Spurs would demand for a 30-year-old. And they do need a centre-forward. They they are they haven't filled the Lewandowski-shaped hole in their team, which takes you back. To two possibilities, the two the, the the two English clubs in Manchester United and maybe Chelsea might do something mad. And um, although they have got Christopher Nkunku coming in, the other one that bothers me is Paris Saint Germain, um, where Kylian Mbappe really really wants a centre forward to play with. He doesn't want to be the spear point of the team. Um, and if they, as seems likely, will let Messi's contract go, and as seems likely, will let Sergio Ramos's contract run out. And they will suddenly have some headroom in a in a pretty tricky financial situation for them as well. Whether they would need to upgrade their defence significantly or, or, or would bow to Mbappe's wish to have another centre-forward, I don't know. Um, but they, 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 there's, a, there's a part of them, Killian's in mind, which sees Neymar left, him right, and Kane up the middle. Um, of course, they won't win the Champions League because they won't have a good enough midfield or defence uh, to let them do that. Um, so I think I think the, the possibilities, and I'm still I'm going to be made look a fool here. There, there are, as director of football, I would say to Daniel, there aren't very many places to go. Now that's not fair on Kane, um, to say all right, he's he's got only limited options. Um, they should pay him what he's worth, just because he's worth it. And they'll say, oh, but then you'll get a whole lot of agents knocking on the door, uh, saying, what about my player? Well, you know, your player is that level, sir, and he's in a team with Harry Kane. He's very lucky to be there, and we'll see what happens. I also don't think that Kane, you know, Kane's fifty-two goals away from Alan Shearer's Premier League record. So on current on current speed, that is, or well, two more seasons basically of football. Um, I don't. My my sense is that 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 will play into his thinking if he's thinking about potentially going abroad. Um, I think he would. What whatever happens, I think he would rather stay in the Premier League. Um, and that's another reason why part of me thinks that maybe he will. I still think it's higher than 50% chance he's at Tottenham next season, uh, to be honest. And then beyond that, well, let's wait and see. But I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of treating the Bayern stuff with a little bit of a, of a pinch of salt. 
Yeah, they, they, they're not known for going out and spending, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds on, on footballers. Let me ask you then, thank you for that, um, a few more bits and pieces that came out of the match. Diogo Jota got the winner. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not blaming the referee for Spurs' defeat. They, he didn't do the defending in the first 15 minutes. But they couldn't, they struggled, didn't they, on the television? They're trying to find anybody who would say that wasn't a red card. It's not just that the outcome was wrong. I don't really understand the process. Like what's the point of having VAR if if this does not, be, you know, if this is not one of the decisions that is He didn't mean to kick him in the head, but he drew blood five foot off the ground. Right, but with those, with those kind of serious foul play red cards, intent is not, it's, it's some it can it, it doesn't have to be to do with the intent you know reckless if you're if you're recklessly dangering an opponent that's a red card for serious foul play yeah i thought it was a ridiculous decision i don't really understand how they how they got to it and, and you know and, and it cost tottenham in the most obvious way yeah um at the other end richarlison got uh, his first premier league goal of the season let's i mean it's been a season broken up for him by injury um by uh, the world cup and all the rest of it I'm glad he got the goal because we're starting to look, Jack, like one of the worst ever seasons for a big a big money player. And Spurs can't afford that because they can't afford it full stop in the proper sense of the word. But they cannot have a situation where, you know, and he gets in it, let's say he's still there next season. And then the rumors of him going to Barcelona are not what they, what I think they are, absolute tosh. We can't have a situation where all of Spurs' most expensive signings, um, in Dombele, uh, Davinson Sanchez, Richarlison, Romero to some extent at the moment are absolute busts. We can't have that. I mean, it just make it. I'm, I'm not easily embarrassed. I, you probably worked it out from working with me because um, I think embarrassment comes from within. But it, 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 it starts to get look pretty bad, doesn't it? If all of your big signings for a club not renowned for splashing the cash turn out to be duds, he needs to kick on, doesn't he, Richarlison? And I was glad he got the goal. It'll help him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I still don't really know. I guess this is kind of the issue with Richardson. We still don't really know where he fits into the team. Like, I, I, I don't think in terms of his performances, I don't think he's been that bad this season. I think he's got his obviously his goal tally isn't good enough. I think he's been a bit unfortunate that his good performances haven't been reflected in goal tally. I was really interested to see him start on the left against Manchester United, where I don't think he's probably his best position. Although obviously he was dropped. You know, he was obviously dropped for yesterday's game and then came on, um, but I don't think I don't think his I don't think his season's been quite as bad as it looks. But he clearly needs to start scoring, um, and that's it's one of the other reasons why it was so frustrating and painful that Liverpool won the game right at the end because he it would have been such an amazing you know it would have it it would have been such a wonderful moment for Richarlison if his goal had rescued that point for Liverpool, sorry, for Tottenham, not least because he was getting so much stick from the Liverpool fans when he came on. And also he should have had a penalty. Like he should have won a penalty where, when Canate fouled him, which is not the biggest referee mistake of the day, but is clearly still a referee mistake. Um, so, I, I, yeah, it would have been nice for him to get a bit more of the kind of, of the last word on the occasion. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about his fellow Brazilian now, Lucas Moura. He is, of course, always going to have plenty in the credit column because of what happened in in, in the Amsterdam arena. Um, I have to say there are times, 99% of the time, 99.9% of the time, if you're a professional footballer, the thing to be is a professional footballer. But there is 0.1%, if the maths uh, tally up there, where you need to be an amateur footballer. When your team has moved might and main, has strained every sinew um, to get back into a game on one of the most difficult grounds in England, when you're three down... And the ball comes dropping out of the sky to you in no particularly difficult way. Your choice is to boot it back up the pitch to allow the referee to blow the final whistle or because you might play it into a channel where the absolutely fresh Richarlison or the absolutely fresh Dan Juma might hunt down the ball ahead of Liverpool's defenders. I have to say what you don't do is try and play a volleyed inside pass to a player who you hardly ever play with because you don't play in the back five um, as as he did, I thought it was. Look, it's it's a moment. It's easier for me. I'm watching it on TV. It was a nutty thing to do, and from the moment Jota got the ball, let's be honest, we all knew it was going to happen. Yeah, I just don't really understand why they brought him on. Like, it's really easy to be smart after the event, but when when Mason brought on Lucas and, and Dan Juma together with five minutes, le- with a few minutes left, I did think. 
I can understand why he's brought on Dan Juma, and I think Dan Juma is a really exciting, talented player, and I would like to see. You know, again, I'm pleased that Mason Mason has seen that in a way that his predecessors didn't. But I did, don't, don't really understand what you gain by bringing on Lucas at this point. Like Lucas is not, you know, he's back when Lucas was good. You know, he was he was effective in the final third. He could find space. He could get shots off. Um, yeah, he was good in the air. He would work hard. But I mean, physically, I don't think really think it's the same Lucas. He's obviously had bad injuries. Uh, he's he's barely he's barely played this season. Um, so I don't think physically he's the same that he used to be. I don't really think his it's never re- I mean, sort of football intelligence, game management, that sort of thing has has never been a strong point. We saw this when he got sent off at Goodison Park in a way that was incredibly costly to Tottenham. Uh, I don't really think he offers you anything in the final third anymore. He hasn't scored in the Premier League since Boxing Day 2021. So I just think, like, what, what what are they actually gaining by having Lucas on the pitch here? I just think... It, yeah. Whatever about his shortcomings, Pedro Porro's engine is not in question, is it? He appears to be an absolute... He's a monster for running. And and, and it, Pedro Porro was, was being really effective. Yeah, you know, absolutely. his crossing is fantastic. He, his, his, he, he runs and runs and runs. Obviously, he's got a bit to work on the sort of physical side, defensive side, since coming to England. So, yeah, strange decision. And it's weird. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, it's, it's a shame that Lucas's time at Tottenham is going to... Probably, probably going to end in this way, but this, I mean, maybe he will get another game. And to be, to be honest, after he got sent off at Goodison Park, I thought, well, I don't, I don't imagine we'll be seeing him again. And then, you know, he's come, he, he's, he's come back on in another big away game in Merseyside, made another mistake. Just a tiny, uh, a tiny sort of uh, tributary of all this. The behaviour of Jurgen Klopp when they got their winner. Um, I like Jurgen. I think he's on the right side of history on most matters, footballing and political. But sometimes his behaviour on the side of the pitch makes me think, are you secretly a bit of a git, my friend? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I agree with what you say about Klopp. I do think he has a bit of an unpleasant side. Um, And we, you know, this is, sometimes this comes through to the media in press conferences or his immediate post-match interviews if he doesn't like something. And I thought that what, you know, what we saw from him last night was was pretty vicious and unpleasant. and uh, you know, particularly in the in the broader context of the abuse that referees get, particularly da- you know lower down the pyramid away from the away from Premier League officials, uh, it it sends really the worst possible message about how about how coaches should interact with officials. I think he was complaining about not getting a penalty for the clash between Davis um, and Mohamed Salah, um, but the, the the lack of self awareness that Jota had got the goal having booted somebody in the face five foot off the ground. Uh, you know, no one wishes anyone any physical harm, but you'd have to have a heart of flint not to laugh when he pulled his hamstring doing it. Um, I'm sure it'd be fine in a couple of days. A little bit of railjects and, and a rub from uh, for, from Mrs. K. Uh, not my Mrs. K, his Mrs. K. And I'm sure everything will be okay very quickly. Listen, listen we'll end this... Um, uh, this is this bit, but a, a lovely email we got from Glenn Freeman about the match. And I think, you know, everyone will have their own opinion. Some will say that's typical of a team without spirit and, or without spine. And some will say, what a fight back. But this is Glenn. I don't think it was, po- I didn't think it was possible for any of the bad stuff that happens to this team to hurt me anymore this season. Even when we're doing a St. James's at the beginning, I could barely be bothered to shrug at the TV. Yet by the end of the game, thanks to the spirit of the team, the recovery and the injustice at the hands of the officials, there was a jubilation and then the anguish that I've not felt watching Spurs for ages. That made me care again, and that just makes it hurt even more. I guess that's credit to Mason for bringing some fight back into the squad and the players that dragged us back into that game. He then goes on to say, keep up the good work through triumph and disaster. View from the lane is the comfort every Spurs fan needs. Um, I don't know about that, but thank you very, very much for the thought, Glenn. Um, it keeps us going as well. We, we we run as hard as we can at this podcast and hope not to strain a middle-aged hamstring. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yeah, welcome back, everybody, to The View from the Lane. Uh, I'm Bank Holiday, so it's just me, Danny Kelly, and Jack Pitbrook. And Jack, you've been pawing the ground since the break. I, I forgot to ask one, you. Yeah, one of, the thing that I've, uh, one of the things that I meant to say in the first half of the show, which I forgot to say, is that if, the Ryan Mason, if this Ryan Mason spell can do anything or can have any big value for Tottenham, it's this. Getting Son back in shooting positions, you know, the last honestly, the last two games has been the best we've seen from Son, and I think we all, everybody, not least Son himself, was kind of tearing the hair out under under Conte when Son would have to come short to the ball, play it back to Ben Davis, uh, try and be used in in completely the wrong way. And Mason spoke about this in his press conference the other day, talking about how he really wants him attacking the opposition defensive line, running towards goal. And we saw that against Manchester United last week, and then we saw it again at Anfield you know, on Sunday. So this is against two of the best teams in the country. And he just looks back to his old self again. Like, I don't think, you know, the finishing maybe isn't 100% there, although I do think he took his goal well. But I think the the finishing is kind of a... I think, I, I think the finishing is a function of confidence. The confidence is linked to getting in shooting positions. And if Son if Son if Son can show that he can get in shooting positions and get shots away, then I actually have confidence that maybe this is a blip rather than a terminal decline. Um, and maybe I mean, look, if Spurs can go into next season with a Son who can score, go- who can get into shooting positions, get shots away, score goals, then it's looking it's looking a lot brighter for Tottenham. Hopefully, this is a, a green shoot of recovery we're seeing at the moment. Here, here, absolutely. And Spurs going to next season with a son who's rediscovered his zest and scoring touch, and a Harry Kane who's trying to prove himself uh, to the paymasters at Lake Norwich or whoever's going to buy him uh, in the in the following summer. Um, then that would be a really good head start for whoever comes in to be the permanent manager. Of course, about which there is complete silence, complete radio blackout. And then the bookmakers, normally so cool and accurate about these things, have still got Nagelsmann as favourite, though he's in some places you can still get four to one against him. That is some kind of race when there is no, not really a favourite for it at all. After, let's be honest now, over a month again since Spurs got rid of Conte. Um, let me, uh, the rest of this is coming out of, uh, we're moving away from the match now, um, Jack. Uh, there is this famous stat, isn't there, about the number of Spurs players who won, the number of trophies they've won once they've left Spurs, since Spurs themselves last um, lifted uh, a piece of silverware skyward. Um, two more to add to the list, which is well over 110 now. I think we're into the mid-teens of, of trophies won. Um, Toby Alderweireld and Vincent Janssen won the Belgian Cup with Antwerp today, or yesterday, actually Sunday, um, to add two more uh, notches to that particularly grim bedpost. Um, obviously, Joe Hart and Cameron Carter-Vickers are going to cement the Scottish title any day soon. 
and they're playing a team from the level below them in the Scottish final. So there'll be four more trophies for ex-Spurs players, and it goes on and on and on. They could they could win the league. So I've been looking. At, so the Belgian Pro League, of course, goes goes to a uh, a playoff system. The top, yeah, the, the so that uh, there's a top four playoff system between uh, Genk, Union Saint Gilles, Antwerp, and Club Bruges, uh, which will determine the, I believe, will determine the the actual Belgian champions as well as who qualifies for the um, the Champions League for next season. So there's still. Uh, what six more games to go for Antwerp starting on the seventh of May, so a week a week yesterday. Um, so it'd be amazing if they could win if they could win the title. I don't think, sadly, I was the, the dream from a Spurs perspective would be them going up against Jan Vertonghen's Andelect in the final phase. But Andelect have had quite a rubbish season this season. They're stuck. They finished eleventh in the regular season out of eighteen. So that sadly, Jan will be on the beach already. And uh, not not participating in the Belgian Pro League playoffs in May. Well, you can keep you can keep ticking them off, and of course, he didn't clinch it yesterday. But your your favourite uh, in Dombele, um is going to get a, a, a scudetto. Um, they 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 blew it against Salernitana yesterday, um, having rescheduled the match. Um, and got permission from the other players to play it later so they could have a proper big party on the television. They conceded an eighty fourth minute equaliser against Salernitana, which. Which caused Spalletti to say, um, we're just extending the party. I thought it was one of the great pieces of straw clutching of all time. But they are going to win that title and uh, he's going to get the yeah, medal as well. Six games to go. One more, one more point. One more point. One more point. They'll be okay. And they'll, they'll be fine, yes. Um, Graham Irwin, I'm, I'm sure some of the listeners will groan now, but uh, I hope you'll indulge me. This is a question purely about music, or it does conf- uh, involve Spurs. Uh, Graham says, um, a Spurs-related music question for Danny. I was wondering if he'd ever discussed Spurs with the wonderful and greatly missed Mark Hollis. Mark, the visionary lead singer of Talk Talk, was a big Spurs fan, and reading a recent biography of his, your name comes up a couple of times in reference to meeting him in the early and mid-80s. Yeah, um, I did um, interview Talk Talk, and I did know Mark Hollis. Um, Do you know what? The, The subject of Spurs never came up, because this was early in their career when they were very keen to sell themselves. Um, and of course, the early Talk Talk albums are good enough, but it's only later on, Jack, and I'm sure you're aware of this, that the, Mark takes a complete turn away from pop music and makes uh, one or two of the greatest, I, I don't know what you'd even call them, their dream folk pop albums. Spirit of Eden is an incredible record. Um, and, you know, we all, those of us know about, know he made it deliberately, only made it at nighttime in a completely dark studio, often lying on his back. Um but I must say, my recollection of meeting Mark in those in the earlier days was that uh, he didn't mention Spurs to me, but he did go on and on and on about Herb Alpert, the uh, legendary um, American trumpet player, because um, Herb owns A&M Records, or when it, when it was A&M, which they were signed to, and they called him Mr. Alpert throughout the interview. And essentially, all they would tell me about their, their lives at Talk Talk was how grateful they were for Mr. Albert. Mr. Alpert for signing them to AM. Um, but no, we didn't get around to speaking about Spurs. Uh, thank you. Loving your work, says Graham, and that's very kind of him as well. This is from uh, Casey Cop, who's making a case for the Conference League. Um, we may not have a choice about this, Casey, but I take your point. This is what he says, Jack. I really wish this sentiment about the Conference League would stop. I love Spurs, and there's absolutely no circumstance where I want to watch them less. I don't care if the football has been shit for a better part of four years. I do, Casey. Um, I don't care what banter other rival clubs give on Twitter. I don't care if we have to travel across Europe. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is because so long as I can see the lily white and the cockerel badge, there's a feeling of pride and joy that I want to feel as much as possible. Like the song says, I can't smile without you. Now, aside from my own selfishness, there are far more benefits to playing in the Conference League than no European competition at all. We have a big squad built for two games a week, and it is a great opportunity for youngsters and fringe players to get first-team minutes. On the other hand, if the new manager wants to prioritise the competition, we can use it to build momentum and a winning spirit, much like Ten Hag and Manchester United did early in this season with the Carabao Cup and the Europa League. Either way, we're desperate for a trophy, and our best chance of winning a trophy is one with no Manchester City or Liverpool in it. Um, that's a kind of turnaround at the end there, isn't it? Where it's all about um, Spurs and glory, and then suddenly is you've got to find a competition without um, Liverpool and Manchester City in it. What 
you know, I can, the Europa League, you can sell it to yourself as a road into the Champions League. The Conference League, and I, I'm not going to denigrate it, I don't know what you think about it, Jack, about the prospect Spurs finishing. Would it be seventh they'd have to finish to, to get in the Conference League? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's looking like fifth and sixth going to the Europa League and seventh going to the Conference League. Um, it'd be slightly complicated because if West Ham win this year's Conference League, then they would qualify automatically for the Europa League um, and England would therefore have eight places. But I don't think that would change the overall calculation. I think seventh would... Seventh seventh place would mean would mean Conference League. It's looking at the moment like Liverpool. I mean, L- Liverpool are looking pretty good for fifth. Brighton have obviously got all these games in hand, and uh, and then pretty well. Then it's Spurs and Aston so Villa, think, isn't it? Yeah, it's looking like a sort of fifty fifty between Spurs and Aston Villa for seventh um, and Conference League football. I would rather Spurs were in the Conference League than not. Uh, I know that you know from. I know there's an argument which is that a new coach would might rather they didn't have the conference league so they could focus on training the players week to week, which I think, you know, obviously there's a big material benefit there. Uh, I completely appreciate that some, you know, fans will have a range of views on this. Some fans might not want them to be in it. Some fans might want them to be in it. I would rather they were in it. I think, well, I mean, as a journalist, you'd like, is it easier life as a journalist the more games there are? If there's, uh, if there's no games, you've got to work harder to come up with stories in the week. Charlie's piece in The Athletic this week, um, or today if you want to go and read it, is a really clear uh, exposition of the kind of roller coaster that was caused for us all by um, that late winner for Liverpool and Moura's horrible mistake, um, and whether or not it's actually better to feel something, even if it's only agony, than to be going through the kind of numbing lack of care that some of you have described very, very uh, clearly um, in, in emails and, in, and text to us here at the View from the Lane, um, I am. I was oddly enough when the goal went in. I thought I would be apoplectic as I was when the goal for, when Everton's goal went in, but I, I wasn't because I could see what Spurs were trying to do. Whereas at Everton, um, well, I could see what they're trying to do, but I did not approve of what they were doing. Um, it was a much better performance um, to see forward players. You know, and I include Porro in that, um, roaring into the Liverpool penalty area, causing them pain, causing them grief, causing them to concede goals. I'd rather that, as I always say, than sit on the edge of your own penalty area, hoping you'll get a break at the other end from a set piece or a penalty to win the game. Listen, thank you all for listening. I know it's a bank holiday. Um, it's, it's, therefore, it's very special to have you along with us. We'll be back in again on Thursday with much more to say about Spurs. Thanks to Jack for being here. And remember, of course, as I always say, that in order to read these fantastic pieces, you have to be a subscriber to The Athletic, which is very easy to do. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Sign up right now for $1.99 a month. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Thank you for listening. We're back in a few days' time. Cheers now. Athletic.